All right, if you want to get your Bibles out, we don't have a specific passage that we're going to spend time in today, but I do want you to go to 2 Timothy to start. Today is our question and answer Sunday, and I have to say some of the questions I got were not easy, um, and I got a bunch of them, by the way, so if we don't get to your question specifically, we'll come back to that. And I'll address that later, but we'll do the best we can this morning, okay? But 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to start with this passage, verse 16 and 17. 16 and 17. This is a good reminder for all of us. And as you're turning there, in the bulletin that you didn't get that I wrote last night and forgot to bring, okay, the thought from the pastor was about, um, is it important that we all spend time in Scripture every day. And the gist of that little note was, well, do you eat food every day? Okay? And so in the Scriptures, there's lots of references to the God's, God's Word as our spiritual food. And so basically, if you don't spend time in day, you're starving yourself. And it's no wonder if you lack the, the presence and the Spirit, the power of God in your life, if you neglect the food that God has given us for spiritual strength. And so we start with that premise, but I want to start by reading chapters, uh, chapter 3 in 2 Timothy, verse 16 and 17. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then the purpose is in verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, truly furnished unto all good works. So that's why God gave us his word, so that we would be prepared to face life, to live life the way that God wants us to, and everything that we need is in Scripture, okay? And so as I looked over these questions, again, some of these are difficult to answer from Scripture because there's not specifics in Scripture that says, oh, this is the answer to that question. And so I had to use what Scripture that God has given us to make conclusions. And so on some of these, I'll preface it by saying, this is what I believe Scripture teaches. Now, I could be wrong. We could get to heaven and God says, nope, you missed that one. All right. Well, here's the right answer. But based on what we know from Scripture, I'm going to give you the answers that I believe Scripture teaches. Okay. So some of them were related. Actually, I had three or four that were all very closely related. And so the first category is sin, free will, and God's sovereignty. Now, that's about a year's worth of messages right in that category all by itself. Um, I'm not going to preach a year's worth of messages today. I'm going to answer the questions. So here's the question number one, and it's about the origin of sin. It says, if God created Satan as a perfect angel, and there was no sin in heaven before Satan's rebellion, how was Satan able to commit his first sin and want to be like God without another source of temptation, where did sin come from in the first place? That's a a very interesting question. Okay, let me go back to God's creating angels. I believe that God created angels with a free will, just as he created man. Okay, we were created with a free will as well. But uh, Lucifer is an angel, not a person. We have to keep that in mind. And Lucifer was created perfect and holy, in his original state, just as Adam was. But because he was given a free will, he, in his free will, decided that he did not want to submit to God any longer. And so he had that choice. 
and he wanted to be equal with God, and we read about that in Scripture. He says, I want to be like God, and then he tempted Eve the same way. He said to Eve, you know, if you, did God really say you die? If you eat of that, you'll be like gods. You'll know good and evil. You'll be just like them. Okay, so it was a pride. The essence of pride, really, that was behind the first sin. And that's at the root of all sin. And James 4 tells us, and 1 Peter 5 tells us, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we're talking about pride as the source of the original sin. But the question focuses on where did that come from? Where was the temptation for that? Well, it was within the creation himself. Because we have a free will, we have the choice, the, the opportunity to make those choices ourselves, just as Satan did. So sin originated in the heart of the created being who no longer wanted to submit to God in service. That's what happened to Satan. He chose to be his own authority in rebellion to God's plan and place for him. And the same thing happened to mankind. So Satan was separated from fellowship with God then, his place in heaven, because of that pride and the sin that followed. He was evicted from heaven, and he now is permanently separated from God. Now, we are also separated from God because of our sin in an unredeemed state. Again, sin comes from within. You cannot blame sin and say, oh, Satan made me do it. And here's where we get to Scripture to answer the question, not just about us, but about Satan as well. Okay, in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, the Bible says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and when sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So where does the temptation start? It doesn't start outside of ourselves. It starts within ourselves. And the same was true for Satan. So you didn't need an outside source of temptation for Satan to sin, and we don't need an outside source of temptation for us to sin because we have that sin in us. It's really just pride. I want to serve myself rather than serving God, and then every choice that follows that pattern becomes our sin. That's what happened with Satan. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, For they that are after the flesh, or live after the flesh, in other words, fulfilling the lust of the flesh, do mind or pay attention to the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. There's that lack of submission. Neither can be. Um, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So the temptation, even for Satan, started within himself, just like it does for us. Therefore, we can't blame Satan for our sin. It's us. It's the sin nature, that pride that makes us want to serve ourselves and rebel against God's authority. And so sin originated in the heart of Satan, just as it originates in the heart of mankind and then rebels against God to seek our own way in pride, and literally to be our own guy, God in making our own decisions. Okay, So that's the origin of sin. Where did it come from for Satan? Within himself, just like it comes from within us. Second question, and by the way, as I, as I go through these questions to give you answers, I'm sure there's other questions that are going to come up. Okay, So I don't think we'll have time to address all of them today, but write them down, and we'll do this again another time 
and we'll try to get all those answers together, okay? So that one is about the origin of sin. Second one is says, in Isaiah 45, 7, it says, I form the light, I create darkness, I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. If, according to that verse, God was the creator of evil that led us to us having a sinful nature, how can unbelievers be held accountable for the evil that they commit? Now, again, a good question. Based on the, the cursory reading of what Isaiah 45 tells us, and let me just read that again so you can understand. It says, I form the light. This is God speaking. I create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Okay? I believe that's from the King James. Let me read that same verse to you in Isaiah from the ESV. Okay? It says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. If you look at the a, a different version, and this is the, the a good uh, practice to do, is to look at different versions and compare them. Sometimes you don't get the sense of the word just by looking at one version. And so as you read the ESV, that phrase, I create evil, comes out as I create calamity, which is different than sin. Okay, And so it's really what that word means in the original language when God says, I create evil. He's not talking about, I created sin. He's saying, I create bad things, or I am the source of some bad events that happen on the, in the world. Okay, And it's the comparison, well-being versus calamity. Things are going well, things are not going well. And God says, he's at the, at the source of all of that. Okay? And then it comes to the question, you know, why does God allow bad things in people's lives? Well, he says he does allow bad things. He does allow bad things to happen, and he is the cause of those things. But God is not the author of sin, nor did he create sin. Okay, we cannot ascribe to God the origin of sin, because then we could blame him. All right, that goes back to the first question. If, if God created sin then Satan really wasn't to blame. We're not to blame. It's all God's fault, and so there's no reason for us to be condemned. But God did not create sin. Sin came out of our own lusts, and sin came out of Satan's own, own pride and lust. Okay? So the question comes down to whether God and his sovereignty is the cause of sin, or does he allow sin within his good purpose? God is not the cause of sin. Okay? I cannot... Find that in Scripture. And when you read verses like you see this in Isaiah 45, you have to look at the context and look at actually what the words mean. Okay? So God is not the author or the cause of sin, but he has allowed sin to be part of his creation, and it is actually part of his purpose. And the Bible tells us that. So because of his sovereignty, though, and in his foreknowledge and wisdom, God can and does use sin to accomplish his purpose, and that's an important point, okay? And that goes to the, the, the uh, point of God's sovereignty. What does it mean that God is sovereign, that he controls everything? Does he cause everything? No. Is he control of everything? Yes. Now, let me give you one view of God's sovereignty, because there is one view of God's sovereignty that says that God ordains all things. In other words, he becomes then the author of, or the source of everything. That is his plan. It cannot change, and therefore he ordained them and wants it to happen this way. I don't believe God wants sin to happen, but he allows it to happen. 
But this point, or this view of, of sovereignty, says basically that God is the origin and the power behind even sin. What these people don't say is that God is the author of sin. They just attribute the committing of sin to being part of God's will, which I don't believe that's true. I don't believe in God's perfect will that he wants us to sin. Okay? That is not the God that we read about in Bible. He's perfectly holy. His plan for us is for us to be perfect and holy. I mean, he's called us to that. And so if we say within God's sovereignty, he's the cause of everything, including sin, I think that's uh, fallacious and it's off base. Okay, so I, I define God's sovereignty in a bigger way that doesn't restrict him to treating all of us as robots. God doesn't just say, okay, I'm going to push this button, you have to do this, and some of those things are sin. In Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That verse very clearly says that everything that happens to us is well will turn out for good. It may not be good in our perspective, and it may actually be sin that someone else or even we commit, which is not part of God's desire. But God can still use those bad things and those sins to accomplish his purpose, and this is the marriage of God's sovereignty with man's free will. So man, in his free will, chooses to do evil. We already explained that. God is not the author of sin. God does not cause sin. Man chooses to sin based on the internal temptation to serve himself rather than to serve God. Before salvation, we have no other choice. We have to sin. Okay. After salvation, now we have the Holy Spirit in us. And so now we have another influence, another push, if you will, and another empowering uh, source for us to do what is right in God's sight. You can't do that before you're saved because you don't have the Holy Spirit. So as we're saved then, we don't have to sin. Before we're saved, we do. But when we look at sin overall, God can still use it as part of his plan. We have to keep in mind God's foreknowledge when we talk about his sovereignty. God's foreknowledge means God knew everything that was going to happen before it happened. Now, we can't put God a million years ago and say, well, God knew way back then. Okay, and you go, well, you just said he knew before. I said he knew before because that's the perspective of human beings. We live in time. God is not restricted by time. So when we say God knew before, what we're saying is, God exists. Remember, he told Moses, I am, okay? God exists, but not in time. And therefore, as he looks at us, he sees all of history, all people, all events, all actions, all at once, okay? It's hard for us to comprehend, but that's who God is. Um, C.S. Lewis gave this illustration, I think, is a perfect illustration. If you take all of history and you draw a line on a piece of paper, and then put little dots for every event in history on that line, God is the paper, okay? So history and time and people and everything exists in God. It's not like God has to follow along with time. So God sees everything at once, and we need to keep that in mind as far as his foreknowledge is concerned. And therefore, in his sovereignty, he has allowed us to have a free will and to sin. But he knows that. He knows we're going to make wrong choices. He knows we're going to rebel. He knows we're going to sin. 
And therefore, his original plan from the beginning, before the foundations of the earth, was to respond to that sin and use even the sin to accomplish his purpose. Now, you talk about being sovereign and in control of everything. It doesn't mean that God causes everything, but it means that God can use even the sinful actions of rebellious mankind to accomplish his perfect plan because of his wisdom and foreknowledge. Okay, that's sovereignty. And that's why I believe, um, and that's how I believe that God is sovereign. And so, does God cause sin? No, he doesn't cause sin. He's not the originator of sin. And, um, but he can still use sin to accomplish his plan. Now, I don't know if I answered that uh, sufficiently uh, to help you understand that, but that's where we are, okay, as far as that one is concerned. Um, James, let's go to the, the third one. James chapter 1, verse 13, it says, this is the third question, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Does this first mean that God does not tempt man, but he does tempt angels? Also, are angels today still able to sin like Satan did? Why or why not? Again, these are difficult questions, okay? It took me a lot of hours to put these answers together, even though they're not that long. All right, temptation. So we know we already answered the question about temptation. Temptation comes from within ourselves because of our sin nature, okay? And because we have a free will. Um, So here... Does God tempt angels? Since he doesn't tempt man, that's very specific, and are angels able to sin like Satan did now? Um, Let's go back to God's creation of angels. God created all the angels perfect and holy and yet gave them a free will, I believe, as well. At the time that Satan rebelled, the angels, I think, had to make a choice. Were they going to submit to God or were they going to submit to their own authority? Okay, same choice we have every single day. One-third of the angels, the Bible tells us in Revelation 12, rebelled against God and followed Satan. They were swept out of heaven. Okay, so one-third made that choice. Now, before this took place, I want you to think about who angels were and where they were. All of the angels, including Lucifer or Satan, were continually living in God's presence, personally, in heaven, okay? So this was their environment. This was the personal knowledge they had of God. Therefore, when they rebelled against God, there was absolutely no excuse except their own pride, okay? They couldn't say, well, we didn't realize there was a God. We didn't know what God was really like. We didn't know the truth about all of this. They were in God's presence, all the time. Okay, that's not going to fly. And so they rebelled despite what they knew and therefore literally uh, uh, committed the utmost evil to personally be in God's presence and then to rebel against him. So because of that rebellion then, those fallen angels are sealed in their sin forever and will be judged as we read and studied in, in Revelation. They will be judged and will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. Okay, in 1 Timothy, this is an interesting passage. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, Paul uses this reference. He's talking to Timothy and about living out his Christian life, but Paul makes reference to what he calls the elect angels. Okay? 
And knowing the, we have to know a little bit about this doctrine of election. It means those whom God has chosen. Okay, and I'll just use that phrase for now. But those whom God has chosen, if we apply this word elect to believers, it's those who are true believers who are sealed by the Holy Spirit. They will, they, they are the overcomers. Okay, that's what the Bible refers to when it's talking about the elect as far as the believers are concerned. Here, Paul says the elect angels. In other words, these are the angels that are still in heaven, that are still serving God, and they now have been sealed in their righteousness or holiness, in their submission to continue in their place as God created them in serving God. So if they are sealed as the elect angels, then we make the inference that those who rebelled are also sealed in their sin. And we read a little bit about that in Revelation 21. You know, those who are holy will remain holy. Those who are unjust will remain unjust. Okay, so they are sealed in their sin. So I believe this, that angels had one chance to seal their fate forever. That was that point at which Satan rebelled. And when the angels followed him, that was it. Now, there's one other point that's important here because... Can the angels today sin? No, I don't believe so, because they're sealed in that holiness and submission that they demonstrated at that point. Okay, just like we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, or not just like, but similar to that sealing. So no, I don't believe the angels in heaven can sin now and rebel against God. They had one chance, and they're done. Now, um, the next question, again, is, is a, a, in a line with that. It says, it seems that in order for God to allow man to have free will on earth, he had to allow sin there. But if there's no sin in heaven, do believers still have a free will when we get to heaven? Okay, still focusing on sin and free will and God's sovereignty. Um, yes, God did allow sin to enter creation as part of his plan. He foreordained it as part of his plan before the foundations of the world. He didn't cause it, no. He doesn't need it to accomplish his purpose, no, but he does use it. But as we saw, God was not the author of sin. And in his foreknowledge, again, I told you this is important, that God knew beforehand, it's an important principle, he knew everything that would happen in creation before it happened. Satan's fall, the fall of man, all of our sin, etc. So God had one plan. Okay, there was no plan B. Oops, they sinned. Now that messed everything up. We've got to change plans. Okay, God had one plan because he saw all this from the beginning. And so his plan is to respond to that sin. In Acts chapter 2, Peter tells the Jews that they crucified Christ, but that very act of crucifying Christ was according to God's unchangeable or predetermined plan and according to God's foreknowledge. In other words, God planned for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Okay, there are several verses in the New Testament that talk about um, our election as as believers being based on the foreknowledge of God. So we have to keep this foreknowledge of God kind of front and center as we explain these things. And so God created man with a free will, allowed Adam and Eve to sin based on their own choice. And therefore, man is guilty before God because of our own sin. Okay. Now, in heaven, it will be a different story, because right now we live on earth with earthly bodies. These bodies were made for this earth. Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, okay? And he says, when Christ comes back, talking about the rapture, he says, this corruptible will put on incorruption, 
And when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, then shall be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Okay, we will be changed. That's the phrase Paul uses there. We will be changed. In other words, the sin which resides in these earthly bodies, the sin nature which we carry with us, battles against the Holy Spirit. And in our free will, we can submit to the Spirit or we can submit to that uh, sinful nature. And many times we choose that sinful nature over God's way for us. I tell people, or I ask the question, is it possible for a believer to live his life after being saved and not sin? It is a possibility, yes, but it's not a probability. Because if it's a possibility because if we only did what the Holy Spirit told us to do, he would never tell us to sin. But we don't only, only do what the Holy Spirit tells us to do. We do what we want to do, and therefore we sin. Okay? But that comes from the, human, the, the old human nature, that, old, that uh, cursed nature that we have because of sin in our bodies. And in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read it to you because Paul explains it better than I can. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this corruptible body must put on incorruption. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the corruptible puts on incorruption and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the answer to the question, um, you know, do we still have a free will in heaven? Yes, okay? We still have a free will in heaven. We still get to make our own choices. But the sinful nature that influences us to sin now from where the temptation comes will be gone. We will receive perfected, glorified bodies, the incorruptible bodies that Jesus will give us at the resurrection. And therefore, the curse of sin, the influence of sin, the temptation of sin is no longer present when we get to heaven. And we looked at that when we looked at uh, Revelation 20 and 21. There's nothing bad in heaven. There's no sin. There's no pain. There's no sorrow. There's no crying. All of that is done away with. And so, yes, we still have a free will to choose to submit to God, but we're sealed in that because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And there's no more influence from the corrupted nature to to tempt us to rebel against God. And besides that, we also know from Revelation, Satan and his angels will be in the lake of fire by then. And so there's no opportunity for them to even suggest to us sin. None of that is going to be present in heaven. So, yes, we have a free will in heaven, but we will only choose to worship God in perfect holiness. Okay? All right, one more in this category of sin and the sovereignty of God. Are some sicknesses caused by sin, such as cancer, heart disease, or even headaches? Are sicknesses, some sicknesses are related to certain sins, such as sexual perversion, alcoholism, and drug abuse. Those are obviously related to sin. But what about others in people that are not guilty of blatant sins? Here's the short answer. I'm going to preach on this next week because this is the next section in James chapter 5 that we started last week, okay? But here's the short answer. Yes, sickness is due to sin because there's no sickness 
apart from the curse of sin. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, they brought the curse upon the world, and that's when death started, that's when sickness started, that's when decay started, all of that that's related to illness that started at sin. So yes, all sickness is related to sin, but is all sickness because we sin? No. Okay? Some of it is. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul, in the context of the Lord's Supper, tells the Corinthian believers how they're supposed to approach that, uh, the table of the Lord. And he says, you guys have been abusing this. You've been violating the whole principle that surrounds this. And he says, because of that, some of you are weak and sickly, and some sleep. means, in other words, you've died specifically because of that sin. So God was judging them in sickness and in death in some cases because they were dishonoring the Lord's table and each other. Okay? But... No, not all sickness is due to some sin we've committed. Remember in John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples came across a blind man, and his disciples immediately, assuming that all sickness was related to sin, they said, who sinned, this man or his his mother and father? Otherwise, he wouldn't be blind, right? And Jesus said, no, neither one of them sinned. His mother and father didn't sin. He didn't sin. This is not because of sin. He says, this sickness or this blindness is specifically to demonstrate the power and glory of God. And then he healed him. And so, yes, there are sicknesses that are related to our sin, but sometimes God allows sickness just to demonstrate himself in us or in other people. Okay? There's the short answer. We'll take more time next week to to go more in depth on that. All right, let's shift gears. Heaven, here's a question about heaven. I'm sure this probably is related to our study in Revelation. In heaven, will we have our earthly memories? That's a difficult one. Um, Maybe, okay? Maybe. (laughs) Let me give you some scripture for that. Isaiah 65, verse 17 says, this is God speaking, For behold, I create a new heavens and new earth. Remember, we studied that in Revelation um, 21. The former, those things that came before, The former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. So some will take that verse in Isaiah 65 and say, well, God says we're not going to remember anything that came before that final eternal kingdom. Except if you go one verse back in verse 16 in Isaiah 65, the Bible says, for the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. Troubles, he specifically states bad things. And remember, in Revelation, when we studied the end of Revelation, it says in heaven there will be no sin, no sickness, no crying, no sorrow. So it's all of those things associated with sin. Those are the things that will be forgotten. We know that for sure. You're not going to remember the sins that people committed against you or that you committed. Those are all under the blood of Christ. Will we remember the good things? Maybe. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But I think it's very possible that when we get to heaven, we'll have the opportunity to rejoice even in the good things that Christ did on earth in our earthly lives while we're with him in heaven. I don't see any reason why not. So we may remember all the good things, but the bad things will all be gone. Okay? And, and you know, Revelation 21, 4 says, God shall wipe all tears away from their eyes. So all that bad stuff, you won't remember that. All the good stuff, very possibly. Okay? All right, a question on prayer. 
It says the Bible tells us to never cease in praying. How can we accomplish this while having to focus on the regular responsibilities and travails of daily life and business? Okay, another very practical, difficult question. Okay, and um, the answer is, well, we should pray always. The Bible tells us that, right? That's a command. So should we walk around with our head bowed and our eyes closed, running into things while we're praying, trying to get along in daily life? No. Okay, that's not what it says. Um, But what I believe is this. Prayer should be the hallmark of the Christian life. It should be the most primary, most prevalent activity of your Christian life. And I'll go so far as to say this, even more than Bible reading. Okay? Now, we do gain knowledge, wisdom, and strength from reading God's Word. I already mentioned that. But prayer is how we connect with the Lord personally. It is that connection to him in communion. As we read God's word, we can read what he tells us, but we have to respond to that. And it's not just a response in the things that we do. It has to be a response in prayer. He wants to have a two-way conversation. Okay, so that's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And this is in the middle of a group of little commands that Paul gives us, and they include rejoice evermore, Pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. So these are basic commands that Paul gives us, and one of them is pray without ceasing. This should define you as a believer. Okay? So the question is how to incorporate prayer into everything else that we're doing. And the answer is easy to say, harder to implement. And it's more about habit than anything else, really. Okay? Keep God as part of every conversation and every activity you have. That's the answer. Whether you're talking somebody to somebody else or doing something, you keep God in that conversation. Let me just give you some, some simple examples, okay? It's, it's creating the habit of mindfully keeping God as part of that activity or conversation. Ask him for help in the little things as well as the big things, okay? And just take a normal work day, for instance. Before you answer emails, pray. Before you answer the phone, say a quick prayer, okay? Um, Ask God to help you before you go into a meeting or when you're in the meeting. Uh, In the midst of conversations, and I do this a lot, silently pray for wisdom. Sometimes we're talking to people and they'll come up with some kind of a zinger And you're like, whoa, what do I do now? What am I going to say, Lord? Okay, and that's the response in prayer. What am I going to say, Lord? And the Bible says that God will give us the words to answer those things in truth. Okay, that's what the Holy Spirit is there for. So we just incorporate that conversation with God into everything that we're doing. And remember, it's not just about asking for help. We saw uh, uh, last week that prayer also involves praise. So if you're not in a situation where you feel like, God, I need your help right now, then start thinking about the things and get in the habit of just thanking God. That was the verses I I shared this morning. His mercies are forever. And so we should forever be thanking him. So thank him that you made it to work safely. Thank him that you had food for breakfast. Thank him for the clothes that you're wearing. Thank him that you have a job. Thank him that you have a family. Thank him for whatever God has given you. Okay, And whatever you're doing, thank you, Lord, that I have fingers that I can type on the keyboard or iron the clothes or whatever. 
See, it's, it's creating a habit of keeping God in the forefront of whatever you're doing so your response to whatever you're doing starts with him. And then you create the habit of continuing in prayer. It doesn't have to be, oh, dear Lord, you know, and make this formal prayer. It's just talking with the Lord. And there are some times when God wants to hear what's on your heart. If you're frustrated, if you're upset, tell God. Don't tell other people because that'll make them frustrated. Tell God. He doesn't get frustrated. Okay, and I can, I can uh, attest to this because there have been lots of times that I've been frustrated about something or just angry or whatever. And so I start talking to the Lord, why, why God? Why do you allow people like this into my life? Why have you dumped all this on me? And I, I just vent. And after about five minutes, I start to realize, all right, well, it's not God, it's me. I need to get right. And then I confess my sin and, and go on with my day. Okay? But see, prayer is a habit. And so trying to incorporate that in every day is just creating a habit of talking to him about everything you're doing. Um, God wants to talk with us. And remember, James 4 tells us, you have not because you ask not. You don't feel like God is there? Maybe it's because you're not talking with him. Okay, God's there. You're just not paying attention to him. And if you're lacking something, maybe it's just because you haven't prayed about it. Not the big things. I'm talking about the little things of life. Okay? Uh, for instance, how to show love to those people that step on your last nerve all the time. Right? Okay? How to trust God when things don't make sense. How to where, ask God where your glasses are when you can't find them. Okay? That's how you pray without ceasing in a very practical way. But it's about creating the habit of just praying all the time. All right, so there, there's your practical answer as far as that's concerned. All right, last, the next one is God's will. In Scripture, there are examples when it seems that God changed his will when someone prayed. Considering the fact that God's will is perfect, does our prayer change God's will? Great question. Okay, this has been debated. Um, and, and I think the Bible gives us the answers to this. Let me give you some examples. In Exodus 20, uh, not 20, Exodus 32, Israel's at Mount Sinai. Moses is up talking with God, getting the law, and down below, Israel's creating a golden calf, okay, violating the very commandments that God has just given them. And when Moses comes down, God says to him, I'm going to destroy all these people because of their rebelliousness. I'm going to start over with you. And Moses appeals to God, talks with God. That's prayer, right? right? He appeals to God, and he says, You don't want to destroy these people because what would all these heathen nations say about a God who brings his people out of slavery and then kills them all? What would that do? And the Bible says God repented of the evil he thought to do unto his people. Sounds like God changed his mind. Let me give you another one. 2 Kings and Isaiah 38 records the time of Hezekiah. Hezekiah became sick unto death. That's the phrase the Bible uses. And a prophet actually was sent by God to Hezekiah and said, prepare, get your house in order because you're going to die. That's God's word from God to me, to you. And so Hezekiah, it says, turns his face to the wall and prays to God and asks God to spare him. And God's answer to him is, okay, I've heard your prayer and I'm going to give you 15 more years of life. Sounds like God changed his mind. Here's the real fact of the matter, okay? And it's in the question. Considering that God's will is perfect, and it is, 
God's will is perfect. It does not change because it doesn't need to change. So let me give you some premises to understand the answer to this. First, God's will is for us to pray. I just mentioned that. God wants us to pray. And sometimes he puts us in situations where that's our only recourse because we haven't otherwise. So God wants us to pray. That's his will. That's his perfect will. Second, God responds to our prayers. Does he not answer prayer? Does he not say he would answer prayer? Okay, call upon me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. That's God's answer. So God will answer prayers. That's his will, is to answer our prayers. So did God decide to do something, and then we prayed, and he changed his mind? No. God puts us in situations to force us into prayer because that's what he wants from us in the first place. And he, again, here's his foreknowledge. He already knows whether we're going to pray, what we're going to pray for, how we're going to pray. And his plan already incorporates all that into his will. So his will doesn't change when it looks like God changed his mind. His will is for us to pray, and his will is to respond to our prayers. And so that's part of his plan right from the very beginning. He wasn't going to destroy Israel. He wanted Moses to pray. He wasn't going to kill Hezekiah at that point. He wanted Hezekiah to pray. Okay? Now, can we, we start impugning God and say, well, did he deceive us then? Did he say something and he didn't mean it? I'm not God. I'm not going to put God in that situation. God can do whatever he wants because his character and his nature is perfect. When we start questioning his motives and his actions, go to the end of the book of Job and see how that turned out for Job. Okay? So does our, do our prayers change God's will? No. Our prayers are within God's will. His answer to our prayers are his will because that's what he wants us to do. And that's how he responds to us. Now, there could be a lot more said about that. You know, maybe someday I'll preach more about that so we can dig into it deeper. But that's the simple answer. Okay, it's not that God changes. God doesn't change. Revelation tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Okay, he's not going to change. And God doesn't change his mind. So his will is to respond to us in answering our prayers. I don't know how many more I have time for. There's a long one about unity. I'm going to try to dig into this real quickly. Some definitions of unity include the general quality or state of being made one or unification. How can we work within our communities when we are of different beliefs and come from different denominations? This is a difficult one, okay? Um, First of all, we have to define the word community. If we're talking about the general community around us that includes believers and unbelievers, It's a different idea of unity than if we're talking about just believers, okay? Believers and unbelievers can work together for a common cause in common methodology, but they can't be truly in unity because they don't have the Spirit of God in them. Unbelievers don't, okay? When it comes to underlying motives and philosophies, those are diametrically opposed between believers and unbelievers. Why we're doing it. An unbeliever cannot do it for the glory of God. Romans 3 tells us that. For all have sinned and come short of glorifying God. So there's a problem there when we talk about absolute unity between believers and unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Can't, can't do it. Okay? 
For what fellowship, there's unity, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? You are the living temple of God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And then he says, Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. So this idea of working in unity with unbelievers, that's difficult, okay? because there's just diametrically opposed philosophy and underlying motives. They, they can't be the same. You may be wanting to accomplish the same thing, feeding the poor, helping, you know, that kind of thing. Those things can be worked together with unbelievers to accomplish those goals, but again, the motives are different. So that's one aspect of this uh, idea of unity. We can't be in perfect unity with unbelievers. It can't happen. The Bible's very clear about that. When it comes to the unity of believers, I think that's absolutely possible, and actually that's what John, Jesus prayed for in John 17 before he went to the cross. He said, um, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, I pray that they may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. See, there's the purpose of unity. It's not so we can all accomplish the same thing, so we don't have arguments, so that the world might believe in Jesus Christ. They have to see Jesus in us. That's the whole purpose of unity. Now, we can work together to accomplish things, but if we're not working together, if we're not in communion to show Christ, to give him the glory in everything we do, then there can't be unity. He goes on in verse 22, In the glory which thou gavest me I had given them, that they may be one even as I am, as we are one. I and them, thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them, and thou hast loved me. And so the key is verse 21, that they may be one in us. Unity can only be found in God. And Paul discusses this. This is the passage we read in our responsive reading in Ephesians 4. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. There's the basis of unity. Okay? We all submit to the Lord as our Savior. We all submit to God as our King and we are going to live our lives in a way that pleases him and in obedience to him. And then we can agree. And so that comes down to, well, you know, what does the Bible tell us we should be doing? Well, that's where we come into the problems of denominations. Okay, because everybody interprets what the Bible says we should be doing in a different way. I just had a, a conversation with my son last night. Uh, actually, it was this morning. It was this morning, yeah. Man, see how fast I forget. Okay. Um, and then he, he was continuing a conversation that we had started earlier in the week. And he said, you know, there's some guys I'm trying to explain things to, and we just seem to be on different levels. I said, it's because one guy is working from denominationalism, what his denomination teaches. You're trying to work from what the Bible says. And if you can't interpret the scripture as far as what it actually says you're supposed to be doing, you're going to be here. You never are going to see eye to eye. You can't have that conversation because it's going to be button heads trying to convince each other that one person's right and the other person's wrong. That's the problem with denominationalism. Denominations have decided to interpret scripture a certain way and to apply it a certain way, 
And therefore, they're not going to budge from that because that's what defines our denomination. Okay? And, and I've, I've heard people say things like, well, you know, our denomination has stood and died for on these principles and on these truths for years, even if they're not in Scripture. And uh, right away, my response is, well, if they're not in Scripture, it's not worth dying for, first of all. Okay? But the reason we're fighting is because it's not in Scripture and you think it's truth. So the, the Scripture and what God says and understanding what God says is the key to unity. When we can agree on that, then we start to have unity. All right? You know, if, if you say, well, you know, I believe the Bible teaches that Christians should only wear black to church on Sunday, and I say, no, no, I think they should only wear white. Okay, both of us are wrong, but we're never going to get along because we're not following what God says. Our unity is not based in what the Scriptures say and following those principles. So when it comes to practical unity and getting along with believers, God is the authority. I'm not right. You're not right. God's right, and then we have to agree on that. As soon as we can agree on that, okay, then we can get along in unity. Now, even in unity, there may be things that we don't totally agree on. All right, should we have communion every Sunday? Should we not have communion every Sunday? The Bible's not clear on that. Some people think yes, some people think no. You know what? I can still fellowship with people who think something different than what I think because the Bible doesn't say you have to do it every week or you have to do it every day. It just says, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of Christ. So we can have unity in the fact that we do it in remembrance of Christ as often as we do it. So there's the answer to unity. And I know it's kind of vague, but that's the real substance of unity is God's truth is the authority. God is the authority. We are one because of Christ Jesus in the Holy Spirit, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father over all. There's where unity starts, okay? All right, a couple of real short ones here. What Bible version should we read when we first start reading the Bible? Um, I'm assuming that's as a new believer or even an unbeliever. It's a difficult one because everyone has a different opinion of this answer. But let me start by saying this. There is not one inspired translation or version, okay? The Bible was inspired by God as it was given through the Holy Spirit to the original authors in the original manuscripts in the original language. That message was directly from God. Now, we've taken that, and originally it was written in Greek and Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, but Greek and Hebrew. How many of you know Greek and Hebrew? How many of you have a Greek or Hebrew Bible at home? Okay, exactly. So you don't have the original. So then we have to rely on man's translations, are men perfect? No. Okay? So, are there mistakes in Scripture? Well, I have to say yes in translations. You know, I, I have the King James in front of me. I could take you to several passages and show you, well, this word was actually translated wrongly by the translators because they missed this mark. Okay? Or this doesn't exactly communicate the real intent of what the verse was originally saying. But those little things that are scribal errors or translation errors do not change the doctrine and the real teachings of what Scripture teaches. So we're talking about the message, okay? That was inspired by God in the original transcripts as God gave it to mankind. Translations have done the best they could with God's help to stay as close to that message as possible. So let me give you a couple of, of 
of uh, lessons on translations. Real quickly, there's two types of translations. There's one, a word-for-word, or what they call formal equivalency translation. Then the second one is what they call a thought-for-thought or a dynamic equivalency. The difference is, in the word-for-word, the translators did their best to literally go through the original manuscript and translate one word at a time from the original language into English. And so they built those sentences and those verses one word at a time, translating one word at a time. The dynamic equivalency, or thought-for-thought, read through the verse or the sentence and then translated the idea in a new sentence, okay? Not corrupt, they still maintain the same idea and truth, but it's not word for word. And so sometimes in those dynamic equivalency or thought-for-thought translations, you lose a little bit of the real sense and thrust of what the word-for-word translation could bring to us because it doesn't use the exact words, Okay, let me give you some examples. Word-for-word translations include King James, New American Standard Version, the English Standard Version, or ASV, Legacy Standard Version, that's a new version that just came out in the last couple years. Okay, those are all word-for-word translations. Okay, so we know from the original language, they took the word, translated it into English as a word, and then did that through the whole verse. Some, Some dynamic equivalency are the New International Version, that's the NIV, the New Living Translation, or the NLT. Those are two that are good. Okay, I would not disparage them in any sense. So they are a dynamic. They took the idea of the verse and just translated the idea rather than word for word. Okay, but here's some that I would not recommend. Okay, good news for modern man or good news today. Today's English Version the message, the contemporary English version. There's others that fall in those categories because those are so loosely and subjectively translated that those actually lose the substance of the message. Okay, And so I would not recommend the ones that I just mentioned. If you want something that's easy to read, that's a dynamic, NIV, the New Living Translation, those are are pretty good. For me, if you're going to be a a teacher, a pastor, if you want to study... In, in seriousness and in depth, I would recommend a word-for-word translation such as, and I, and I grew up with King James, so that's what I'm most familiar with. I never read anything other than King James for 30 years. Um, but I use the ESV, I use the NASV, I use the, the Legacy Standard, I use the American Standard Version, I use the Revised Standard Version. Okay, all of those I use in study and but because those are all word-for-word translations and it helps me to see what the original words actually said, rather than this is the idea that the translators translated. Okay, so when it comes down to what should you start with, depends what works best for you. Okay, lots of people can't read King James. Okay, I understand that. Try the ESV, try the NASV, try the NIV, all right, because all of those are good. Um, Real quick, I got just a few short ones. How many women are mentioned in the Bible? Well, the Bible mentions 94 women, according to my count and according to studies that I looked at, but not all of them are named. There are 64 women named in Scripture that I could find. Uh, I'm not going to give you all their names. If you want, you can look that up. Okay. Um, But here's an interesting thing about this question and about this topic. There are lots of references to women in Scripture, so God considers them to be important, but... 
What Scripture records as far as what those women said only makes up 1.1% of all the text in Scripture. So while women are important, I think what Paul was saying when he said, let women be silent in the church, let them learn in quietness, okay, let them not take the role of authorities in the church, you see that even in the makeup of Scripture. It's not that women can't say anything, okay, but women are not to lead even by example of how much what is recorded about what they said in Scripture, 1.1%. Okay? So, interesting tidbit. You can take that for what it's worth. Next one, how old was Adam when he died? What kind of calendar did people use in those days before the flood? Well, according to Genesis 5.5, Adam was 930 years old when he died. And as far as the calendar was concerned, it was a 12-month, 30-day calendar, perfect 360 days, okay, that... Uh, that they used before the flood. And you say, well, why do we have 365 days now? Because that changed after the flood. Okay, scientists have done all kinds of studies, creation scientists especially, and I don't have time to go into all the details, but just using evidence found in the book of of Genesis, the writer of Genesis in the account of the flood uses two specific specific references It says the flood began on the 17th day of the second month. That's in Genesis 7.11. And it was done by the 17th day of the seventh month. That makes five months of 30 days each. And then Genesis specifically says that it lasted for 150 days. Okay? Not assuming that. Genesis states 150 days. So five months, 30 days each. If we were to use any modern calendars, even the Jewish calendar, those months would be 147 or 148 days, depending on which month you started in, based on the calendar we have today. So it had to be a different calendar then. Okay, So this part of Genesis and what we see in the Genesis flood record back to the time of Adam was before the flood when God had given us 12 months, 30 days perfectly for the year, and that changed after the flood somehow. Okay, so there's your calendar for Adam's life. In what town did Jesus grow up? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. That's why they, were called, they called him the Nazarene. Who were the other two men that Jesus was crucified with? Well, Luke 23 tells us that Jesus was crucified between two criminals, while Mark 15 says they were both thieves. Now, some conjecture that Jesus was crucified between two thieves on the cross because the the Jews especially wanted to degrade his name and show that Jesus was a criminal and a rebel just like these other two who were known criminals. And actually, if you want a little more information on that, from extra-biblical writings, it's recorded that their names are Dismas and Gestas. So there's your Bible trivia for the week. Okay. And, and both of them supposedly were butchers. I don't know how that turns into criminals, but that's what uh, history has recorded. Last one, what's the shortest verse in the New Testament? Well, many consider John 11.35, which merely reads, Jesus wept, to be the shortest verse in the New Testament. Okay, This happens as Jesus stands at the tomb of Lazarus after Lazarus has died. But the question is, why did he die? Did he die because Lazarus was dead, or did he die because there's a whole bunch of people standing around him who didn't believe that he could bring him back from the dead? I think that's why Jesus was was crying. Okay, In fact, I preached a message on John 11.35. It wasn't my shortest message, even though it was the shortest verse in Scripture. 
but uh, it's focused on why did Jesus cry, okay? Now, with that said, if you look in English, that's the shortest verse. But, again, the Bible was given in Greek and Hebrew. So if we look in the New Testament in Greek, John eleven thirty five has 16 letters. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, which reads, Rejoice always, only has 14 letters in Greek. So that's the shortest verse in the New Testament in Greek. If you include the Old Testament, then you have Job 3, 2, which reads, He said... And that only has six letters. And originally, in Hebrew, they did not include vowels in their words. So that makes words a lot shorter. So that's why that verse in Job 3.2 only says, he said, with only six letters. If you include the vowels, it has 13 letters. Okay. Even shorter is 1 Chronicles 125, which reads, Eber, Peleg, and Ru, in English, has 12 letters in Hebrew, it only has nine letters without the vowels. So when you ask the question, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Depends if you're talking about English, Greek, Hebrew, you know, on the perspective. So and those were answers from seminary professors, by the way. So that's how they look at it. So that's all the questions I had. And I hope this was helpful and inspiring for you. I hope it spurs other questions, okay? Not to ask me. You can ask me, but go study the Bible, all right, you can find a lot of this stuff just by reading scripture and letting the Holy Spirit guide you in understanding these things. All right, we're going to stop there. It's uh, been long enough, so let's have a word of prayer and we'll close our service. Lord, thank you again that your word is true, that everything in it is profitable for us, even the little things you have a purpose for. And so, Lord, I pray that you can bless us even through the things that we heard today, that we will be inspired to follow you, just to seek you in your word, and to spend time in prayer on a more regular basis, making it a habit of our life. Lord, again, thank you for Jesus Christ and all that you've done through him in us and for us. And so help us to continue to praise you through this week for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your love. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.